The opinions expressed on this program are those of the host or guest and should not be interpreted as statement of fact. Independent fact-checking and corrections are encouraged. Can we get a cup of coffee in here, please? Oh, yeah. America, you've got a dog that needs walking. That's right, sunshine. Just put on a big pot of strong coffee and get ready to type your little hate mail with your opinions about Kumbaya and Flat Earth insanity. Stand-up comedy? You want stand-up comedy? Well, we got, well, we've got sit-down comedy. It's time for Coffee with the Dog. You make me laugh. Oh, brother. I'm not going to make anybody laugh today. Nobody's going to be laughing. There will be no laughing. They'll be dying. Somebody will die here today, and it will be me. Mystery right out of that. We know who will be done already. I might as well go home. Well, thanks for coming. Uh, good morning, folks. It is Tuesday. I hate Tuesdays. September 26, 2023. It's a shitty day here again. I hope it's not a shitty day where you are. I really do. But uh, it's been shitty here since Thursday morning. I don't know. It's like six days of complete shittiness. It's still like a tropical storm that won't go away. Like it's sitting on top of my house and I'm not loving it. Uh, and I'm not feeling well, by the way, in case you can't, you didn't notice. Um, I said yesterday on social media, uh, when I'm sick, I could have a mild cold or stage four cancer. I complain pretty much exactly the same in either case. And uh, I think it's a mild cold, could be COVID. So stay back. You don't want to catch this. Um, but, yeah, that's the, that's the situation. I'm, I'm sick as a dog, as they say. Willie's not here yet, which is uh, okay. He's in uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. But if he does not appear here today, then I can just declare myself the winner of the football stuff and say I won every game because there's nobody here to fact check me. Now, if I'm honest here, I didn't write down my picks. I knew he was writing them down. Uh, it is on tape, and I could go back to the tape and see who I picked. But I kind of have an idea who I picked. I think I did very well. I think I did by memory. But we'll ha- hopefully he'll be here to fact check me and uh, find out where I did. I don't know what's going on here. Um, I have an author in the second hour, uh, Gail Pinner, who has uh, written a novel based on her grandma. I think it's her grandma. Uh, who uh, was widowed during the Depression, just as the Depression, Great Depression, was starting. Uh, and I think she's written a novel. I'm not sure if it's a novel, memoir, true story, nonfiction, all of the above kind of mixed into one. 
um, yesterday, Nico Lagan, Lagan, Canadian masculinity coach, uh, was the guest. And uh, shockingly, he looked a lot like a younger version of me, except he had the points on the mustache. You know, he had this going on. Uh, but it was a little disconcerting to me, and I'm sure people who were watching were probably like, whoa, what the hell is going on here? Um, I started the day, <clears throat> excuse me, I am not, I'm not doing well. We got the sniffles and going on. I might end up sneezing this whole show. Um, but I started the day yesterday by saying I'm not a fan of these masculinity coaches, these people who think that masculinity is on the decline. And we need real men to tell us how to be men. Because that implies that a lot of guys out there, it almost implies that I'm not a real man. And I, 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 that's them fighting words, bro. Uh, don't be telling me I'm not a real man. I don't care how big you are. I don't care how, how much training you've had in the gym. You tell me I'm not a real man. We're going. We're going to go. We're going to get at it. And I'm an old man, and I don't want to fight anymore. I'm an old man, but a real old man. I'm a man, a real old man. A man, a real man. An old man, a real man. I'm shot. I have not slept. I say this a lot, but I have not slept because I'm sick. And I got, like, man flu. And I'm I'm not doing well with it. Uh, but so, Nico was here. And you know what? He made some good points. Um... We covered four of his five principles that it re- required to be a real man. And I don't remember what the fifth was. Uh, but we talked about faith. And that's a difficult one because faith, sound, and I jumped to the conclusion that he was talking about religious faith. And he said, no, that's not it. Myth faith in yourself. And that's just confidence. I don't know. Uh, or the belief that everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right. I don't know uh, where he was going with that whole whole thing about faith. The other one being a provider, one of the other ones, being a provider, I definitely, re- that resonates with me. I've always had that in, in the back of my mind that in a heterosexual marriage or relationship, the man should be the provider. Um, and it, I don't know. I don't know why that's part of my makeup, but I feel like if I can't be the provider, I'm inadequate. I think on my mom's deathbed, she told my wife that I would always take care of her. And my wife was like, that's not necessary. I I don't want somebody to take care of me. But that is who, that's how I define myself as a man. I don't know. I'm saying I put a lot of thought into that. Obviously, I was laying around sick all day. I got a lot of time to think about the show and what I learned on the show in the morning. Um, so that's what I learned yesterday uh, that about myself that really put a, a big emph- emphasis. I'm sorry, I'm not speaking well. Uh, on being able to be a provider, uh, protector. Another thing, of course that. You know, I think every guy uh, should want. But notice we were talking about in terms of heterosexual relationship. The world has changed. 
and I hate to think that, oh boy, here we go, opening up a whole freaking can of worms. I hate to think that we are alienating homosexual men and telling them they're not men. I didn't even get a chance to talk to him about that because it was kind of a long conversation. But the world has changed. I don't know for the better or worse, but I think acceptance is a big part of it. I've changed a lot in my view about a lot of this stuff. I mean, when I was a young man, I was, uh, and I've I've written a piece on this on Substack about uh, being uh, homophobic most of my life. Doesn't mean I was a hater of homosexuals. It means I was phobic in fear of what I don't know, what I don't understand. And then when I say in fear, I never thought like I was going to get raped <laughs> by, by a gay guy or anything like that. I, and I still have this to this day, a um, reluctance to be one-on-one in a room with a, hero, a homosexual guy who if I think he might be attracted to me. It makes me uncomfortable because I'm always thinking, I hope he doesn't fucking try something. Come on to me. Because I know, listen, in heterosexual circumstances, if a man is alone with a woman he finds very attractive, chances are pretty strong he's going to try something, even though it might be sublimated in some way, uh, not not obvious, but in 99.9999% of the time, some effort at least mild flirting will happen. And I don't want that to happen with, with my friends who are gay. I don't want them flirting with me. I don't want them coming on to me. I don't want that. And it would be very uncomfortable on the, on the basis of, I don't want to lose a friendship over, over that, but oh, excuse me, this is, I have, I'm going to have to keep explaining this. I am, uh, Feverish and full of snot. <laughs> anyway, so that's what I learned yesterday. What did you learn? I, I didn't get a whole lot of feedback, or I actually haven't checked uh, the emails that came came in last night. Got a bunch of uh, emails coming in that I have not checked, but I just you know, wasn't a lot of chatter about the masculinity aspect in the chat room yesterday, and I was expecting there would be. Anyway, a uh, guy who uh, tried and didn't do it yesterday, <laughs> uh, Jay Moranti, uh, was try- having all sorts of technical problems. He's been on the show several times before and never had uh, technical problems, but he seems to have gotten them uh, straightened out here today. He's with us now. Welcome back, Jay Moranti. How are you doing, Jay? Good morning, Matt. Uh, really, really happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. And I'm really, really, really glad to be here. Because Well, let, uh, me, let me just say this. You're in Syracuse, New York, which is not all that far from me, but I can see by the window behind you that you have sunlight coming in. Yes. Uh, Unbelievable, ha- Matt. We, I, we do. Uh, because yesterday, when you started, I could hear, I could hear you started, and you were talking about the horrible weather. And I was feeling it, too, because, uh, you know, the last, not counting today, but the last, the three days leading up to that Monday, three days in a row, no sun at all. And I was just feeling, I'm just like you, man. I was down in the dumps. So maybe it's the universe helping us out. I don't think I was going to be much of a guest. I was 
I was down in the dumps. I was like, oh man, I, cu I couldn't wake up. I feel a lot better. I slept about the same, but the sun, the sun helps. I was, I went outside. I, I got a good walk in. I, you know, we will go forward. We don't need to talk about the technical stuff, technical stuff, but the real problem was the laptop was weird. And then the phone was my phone. Was, I could have done it. I'm doing it on my phone. So ah. that's why I do apologize. I'm not uh, really no a smart no guy. Shit well, I mean, no, I mean, <laughs> but even, even this setup right now, technically, uh, you know, I'm, I'm more of like the actor. I don't understand like lighting. You're not supposed to, that's what you, I'm not coming into good. Cause all the lights behind me, the light needs to be, yeah. you know, shooting it at me, but I'm, you, can, you can kind of see me. I can't, I can get through it, but yeah. Um, yes, we finally have sun today. It's a nice day today. Uh, I need it, man. We, we've been six yeah. since Thursday. We've had just this tropical storm that seems to have parked itself over my house and I'm, it's bumming it's me just, out big time. Yeah, I mean, gloomy. I got up today and looked gloomy. out, and it, yeah, it's just, it's awful. It's just awful. I mean, I could, you know, I know weather, but generally, it a storm comes in two days or at the max, and it's gone. Six days is in, incredible. So, hopefully, it'll clear up here today. Uh, what do you got going on with, with uh, comedy, acting, anything? You got anything going on up there? You yeah. just uh, well, uh, I appreciate you having me on. What I want to do is I want to promote my uh, Jay Maranti comedy page on Facebook. So, uh, you know, older guy, I don't really do the TikTok. I got to figure that out. I don't have TikTok, Instagram. So I just want uh, folks out there to go to the Jay Maranti comedy page. It's not everybody's speed. It's a little corny. If you don't like it, just keep moving. I'm just trying to get a little fan base going. And uh, I'm getting more followers, and you've helped me, Matt. I've gotten some more followers on that since I've been on your show. So everybody go on Facebook, Jay Maranti Comedy Page for some – you'll at least smile for some goofy, funny stuff. So that's my my push there. I'm trying to promote that. Um, and really, it's, it's my only vehicle right now. I mean, I don't do stand-up comedy on stage so much anymore. I mean, I'll host or whatever, but with not doing that, I, I'm just a person. I just enjoy life when I can make people laugh. I can't always make people uh, laugh at work or tell jokes at the grocery store. So, you know, I'm not hearing the laughter, but I feel like I'm doing something when I do my little goofy videos or I'll like, put a joke yeah, on there. Yeah, I, you know, that's something we yeah. deal with, with, with with contributors to the program when they put, uh, hand in a piece and they're, they're telling jokes, but there is no laughter on them. It feels very dry. It feels really dry. Well, well yeah. with La Laurie's pieces, I always put in some canned laughter just to kind of, mm. and I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of canned laughter, but you got to have, you know, the audience no, needs right. some, <laughs> a little bit of, Willie, Willie just uh, right. wrote in from the chat room that he's working on an alternative location. The Wi-Fi is not uh, strong enough where he is. Well, that's because he's in South Dakota. I mean, South Dakota is not really uh, – it shouldn't be part of the United States. We should just let it go. Just let it go. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, um, Dave Lando. Are you familiar with Dave Lando? Maybe. Is he a comedian or wait? He's a comedian, no. yes. Uh, okay. He's going to be – He's going to be at the Funny Bone in uh, Syracuse. Uh, when is it? In next month or something. And I'm okay. considering. Would you be willing to go to the show if I buy you tickets and, and send you there just to uh, say hello to him? He's he's uh, he's been on the show, and I'm kind of trying to uh, promote him as much as I can. He's really funny. Uh, he's got his Absolutely. own show on Blaze TV. Yeah, just Absolutely. go with your phone and just get like a little. Um, Mind Dog, Mind Dog uh, TV welcomes Dave Landau to Syracuse type of. Uh, if I'll, I'll clear it with him. In, yeah, in, make the uh, connection. Yeah, we'll talk about it. Make the connection between Matt. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that for. I'll go see him. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. That, 
Yeah, appreciate that. You're giving me an you're giving me an assignment, Matt. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be doing the same. David Tell is coming to Governor's Comedy in, uh, I think, next month as well, October 14th. He's going to be at Governor's here on Long Island. And Tell, to me, Tell is one of my, you know, heroes in comedy. He's one of the top ones, and so I'm definitely. The problem is, I have a very good paying gig that night that I have to give up in order to go see him. But uh, um, who do you follow in comedy? Ah, oh, you put me on the spot. I, I, wow. I watch a lot of. No, it's I. I do. I watch a lot of different. I actually do. Even though I'm clean, I mean, I like. Uh, you know, I go with. Um, I do catch Bill Burr and and Dave Chappelle. I think they're two of the best. Those guys are great. And then I just catch random. I mean. Um, Let's see here. Well, I mean, I, I really, he's not quite as famous. He still does pretty well. Brian Regan, really clean. Yeah, Brian yeah, Regan, yeah. He, he's very Brian, clean. He, well, he's yeah. amazing. I, I He gets like an award for being the funniest guy. To I've seen a lot of his bits. I don't think he ever swears. He doesn't even really do like an edgy topic. He's just kind of goofy and just talks about life and different things. And he's relatable. Yeah. He's, to me, the funniest guy that's clean. I, I swear he doesn't even say crap. What about dirty. what about Gaffigan? You like Gaffigan? Yes, he's good. He's really yeah. good. I don't think I've ever heard well, Gaffigan uh, curse or swear. He's, or he's pretty clean too. Yeah, and the thing about him is, uh, my my girlfriend told me um, his wife writes most of his jokes. I was like, wow, okay. He said that once in an interview where he was talking about how she writes most of them. I'm like, I think they work on it together. I think it's like a a joint, uh, a joint exercise. Uh, You know, that's a good, you know, that I'm puzzled by that because lately I've had a couple of uh, lady comedians on who are in relationship. Uh, Sarah Tolomash, who is married to Joe Lisk and Katie Hannigan, who is, uh, in a relationship, a living relationship with Mike Vicioni. It's it's just weird with professional co- comics, you know, I think, listen, in music, we, people do that, but they're not like uh, um, in a band together or that <laughs> stuff. It's just weird for me cause that there's no competitiveness in comedy, you know, trying to one-up each other all the time. That would be like really tough if, if uh, you know, my wife oh, was was somebody who was just trying to be funnier than me yeah. all the time. I'd be a little. Bit well, listen, you, that's it's perfect. You said that because my girlfriend, she actually is funnier than me, but she doesn't like being up on stage. So I think uh, I would struggle with like, yeah, she she killed, and I was just okay. I did okay. That would be rough. That would be well. Would be lately, rough. I am. Uh, I've had it up to here. Well, I, for people on the radio, I'm a, a foot over my head. <laughs> Way up, uh, he said. Yeah, way up. way up there with uh, people who tell me they that they can do, uh, whether it's music or comedy, just assume that they can do it. It, it looks easy. Uh, a friend of mine last week was was saying that he doesn't like well, comedians. He, he, we were talking about my show, and he said, "I hate I hate those comedians. I I think I'm funnier than all of them." And I was like, "You don't even listen to them." But you know what? Give give me a joke. Write write me a joke right now. Tell me something that that works as a structured joke. You can't do it. You can't do it. I mean, unless you're stealing from somebody else. So don't. I hate it. I hate that people assume that they can be funny on stage just because you're funny among your friends and family doesn't mean you can be a professional co- comedian. And it just it, it's one of my. Pet I, I could not agree with you more. I could not, I could not agree with you more. And it's more. It's one of the most ridiculous things because uh, they have no idea. They have no idea yeah. unless they get up there. 
and right. and you can't just get up in front of some. You got to get up at a reel with a microphone, an open mic that feels like a show. See how you do. Once you get up there and you half of your or maybe not even half of your jokes just bomb, you'll go, oh yeah, this is different. This is different than just walking into the break room and making a funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so what on the acting front you got anything coming up yes thank you you let me right into it okay so acting this is really interesting um good friend of mine bill white he's a local uh director he's he does everything he's acted directed really talented guy bill is gonna direct a uh this is so cool staged reading of war of the worlds remember war of the worlds oh Orson, yeah of Orson course it's one of my and great inspirations in life yes you know, and you know how to, so you know the whole thing about the how how when they i guess when they you know, this is the 40s, right? When they broadcasted it, people that didn't hear the beginning, this is just, you know, welcome to whatever theater. They thought it was really happening. Isn't that I what believe happened? it was 39. I knew it was a while ago. So anyways, it was. It, it had people like, some people were actually going, is this really happening? Um, so I know of it, and we are going to do a staged reading of that uh, the day before Halloween. So October 30th, so it's just a one-day thing. And uh, it's going to be awesome. He's, he's, yeah, I, I don't know exactly was, which It, it so was be, Halloween night, night. Halloween night, 1939. And uh, yeah. the beautiful thing about it was uh, Orson Welles had just taken over that show just a little bit before that. And he was he was kind of like boy genius in radio at the time. I don't know where, oh, yeah. how he got that. But um, CBS was winning the ratings. And he figured out that... Uh, because they read a disclaimer before before they went into the place that this is, you know, a work of fiction, H.G. Wells. But he knew that they, most of the audience would not be listening. They'd be listening to CBS. And when they went to the commercial, it was just to the point of, we wake into this. Uh, we have now interrupt your program for uh, uh, breaking announcement. Oh, that's how they did it. I get and you. They timed it perfectly it so that as they went to commercial on CBS, people would flip around and then just hear that uh, warning that Very we're true. going into. Yeah. Very cool. Stuff. Genius. That's creative. Yeah. So it's going to be fun to do that reading. Um, makes sense now why Bill wants to read it. You know, obviously, I think he doesn't want to do it Halloween night because we won't, you know, people are trick-or-treating. He figured the night before Halloween to the try to get a good audience. People treat anymore. Yeah, I, 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 well, we in don't... this area, yeah. Yeah, in, the, in this, not like, you know, droves, but they still, even after the, okay, COVID, no, and the first year after COVID, not too much, but they're, they're kind of back into it. There's a good amount of people that get into the, the neighborhood, the suburbs. Where Suburbs we live, there's lots of kids, but I don't. I can say probably in the last ten years we haven't had any trick or treaters. Way before COVID, it's just it doesn't happen. I think people got you know freaked out by too many creeps in the world. It's not, you know. yeah, it can, it can be a, you know walking around at night. Anybody can be out walking amongst you wearing a mask. Yeah. <laughs> like Would hey, look you... at this dude. Is that a is that a real knife dude or what? look at this one guy? He's freaking me out. You know. Yeah. And, you know, and there's. There's police, though. There's police driving around the neighborhoods watching everybody, so it doesn't get too out of hand. What's it like when you were growing up in Syracuse? Were you big Halloween kid? I mean, lots of kids out everywhere. Yeah, just... and I, I did the, the cheesy store-bought. My mom got me the, you know, you had the mask. It was just, you know what I mean, the just the front mask. And yeah, yeah. I was, um, I probably, I know, I can't remember exactly, but I think I was Spider-Man, Batman, things like that. And then as I got older, I tried to be creative and, make the costume a little goofy there get like a scary mask it'd be like a wolfman guy or something. But it was, <laughs> yeah it was fun my family because uh, i'm the oldest i'm the oldest of four so i have a sister and two brothers we would all we would all oh and that reminds me i want to say real quick today's september 26th it's my 
uh, niece and goddaughter's uh, birthday today. She's 20. Hannah, happy birthday. She's awesome. Very smart young lady. She's in college. Happy She's birthday. Come on, sing a, sing a happy birthday. I'm not going to sing with you. Go ahead. You're, I got to sing. All right. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> happy birthday, dearest Hannah. Oh, you're killing me. You know, uh, uh, Happy to you. Saturday night we had a gig in a restaurant, and there were probably probably ten birthdays. But there were uh, a a table of young girls who were getting up to sing Happy Birthday uh, to the friend at the table, and every single person that sang was in a different key. It was it was the worst sounding. Uh, you know, we know it's a musician. You Happy know, Birthday like, should be an easy song to sing. It's one of the easiest song to sing, songs to sing. But I know, people, if you're not if you're not tone deaf, I can sing it okay. You yeah, know? I don't think tone deaf is really a thing. I think people just uh, don't get used to uh, controlling their voice. Uh, but I think I think they can hear that they're not really. Un- I don't know. I don't. I don't know about that. But anyway, well, I hear what you're saying. Right? It's someone, and then and, hey, if you don't believe it, if you believe. If you just don't believe you can sing, if you have that, I can't sing, then you're going to sing. Yeah, that's I a good point. Yourself to, you know, so maybe people are like, oh, I can't sing at all. You know, I mean, yeah, there's different. Obviously, there's a naturally talented person that has an awesome voice. Other people have to work at it. I'm I'm OK. I'm right in the middle there. I always say yeah. scale of one to ten. My singing is like a five point one. <laughs> yeah. And then I have to go, gee, you got to do this. I go, I'm not doing a musical. I'm not unless I'm just singing with everybody in the chorus. Oh, um, one more. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, uh, in, in the a couple things in the acting world, um, I did get cast. This is great. I got cast in uh, Inherit the Wind for the Red House. What's great about that is that's more regional, a little bit more professional. So that's a good accomplishment. I I, I got I got that. I got cast. It's a small small part, but hey, it pays. It's at the Red House in Syracuse. That's going to be in February. And um, the little awesome connection is I love this. Uh, he's like in his seventies. So the guy, remember, remember the love boat, Fred Grandy, the guy that played Gopher. Yeah. The love boat. Show? Yeah. He's, he is in it. He's like, he's like playing the main role and <laughs> he's the main actor in this. So it's like, whoa, I get to act with a pro. I think he's like 74. I met him at the, it was great. He was a really sweet guy. I met him at the audition. Uh, and the guy, the guy that played Isaac, the bartender, the bartender at, right. in, in, in the love boat is directing it. His name wow. is Ted. His name is Ted Lange. So Isaac's yeah. directing it, and I'm going to be acting with Gopher in Inherit the Wind. Wow, that's, that's pretty cool. The highlight oh, of 2024. So that's fe- I, I'm sorry. The pig and me with the girl. Who was it? Lauren Tews, I think was her name. Uh, yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, I, yeah, I, that, oh. that would make it uh, an experience for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> she, was, yeah. she was hot. She was hot. Definitely. Yeah. Um, you know. And then the other. Orson Orson Welles. Are we? Yes. Are you familiar with any of his other work besides War of the World? Do you Citizen Kane and all? You know. His yes, work? yes. Uh, but a long, long time ago in college, uh, community college, I started community college. I took a class, uh, film class. Saw a lot of really good older films, and that that was one of them. Uh, Citizen Kane. Yeah. He yes. was a, a magician before he became an actor and before he became the uh, radio voice guy. He was a magician, and most of his most of his work is based on illusion. War of the Worlds is based on it's like an illusion. It's it's a trick, and uh, yeah. a, a lot of that stuff was very influential on in me. And I can draw a straight line from Orson Welles 
to Andy Kaufman. And uh, people are like, where, where, do you, where do you get that from? This idea that um, you're, you're putting one over on the audience, which people generally don't like to be fooled. They, they don't like that, you know, uh, you're, you're making a fool of me type of thing. But both of those right. guys uh, did that to great success. And I try, tried doing that, and it backfired. And a lot of people were very angry. Uh, well, I think it's great you tried. Yeah, I think it's that great you tried. Poster back back there is Hank Porter, which was a character I was doing, which was an old Western character. And I played, uh, I had white hair and the whole bit. And I went out playing like a uh, elderly uh, person from country and Western. And man, did it piss people off Like when they found out that it wasn't real. Because I had like a Hall of Flame pack, uh, uh, plaque and all this kind of stuff for Hank Porter. And played it off like it was a real thing. People were like, a lot of people were first taken in by it and thinking, wow, we're going to see a genuine, because they weren't really hip on old-time country and thought, wow, this is a real, you know, a country western star from the old days. And then when they found out it wasn't, they were angry as hell, man. Wow. Why do you think they were so mad? I mean, they felt like you deceived them. Like they how- like they were fooled. Like it was like it, it, it was yeah. a fraud. Like you were putting Well, you make, you make a great point. I mean, obviously a magician. Now, when you go to see a magi- magician, you're going in with a different attitude. You know that he's going to be tricking you and fooling you. You're kind of amazed at his talent. But then Andy Kaufman didn't care and he was different. I, th- I thought he was great. I've ne- I would never have the guts to, I'm just too nice of a guy to j- I wish to have the guts to try something like that. But I remember seeing video because my dad liked him. My dad was like, watch this guy. I'm like, dad, he's so weird. Yeah. He's just, he's different. It wasn't really so much that he was funny, but the thing I remember the most was when he was on stage and he got his buddy to get into an argument with him. And boy, they both fully committed. You thought it was a heckler, right? That he wanted to just beat up and they're screaming at each other. It might even came to blows. I mean, Right. It was the wrestling head. thing too on Letterman. Well, and then the wrestling thing is is a, a, a like on an epic scale to just yeah. Jerry Jerry Lawler, I think, was his name, and he's Jerry he, Lawler, yeah. yeah. And he smacked him in the head. He smacked him pretty good. He gave him a good shot. Well, uh, that's the thing. Maybe you maybe you know better than me. I don't know. I've never been able to figure out was Lawler in on it or did he really? Yeah, yeah, he him? was. He he actually copped to it. And uh, when the man in the moon, moon came, yeah, when they did the movie on on Andy Kaufman, he came out and was doing a press thing and was talking about how all that stuff was staged, and yeah, it, basically right from the beginning. And you know what? Good for him. They 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 had a lot of people fooled. A lot of people were really angry by it too. The whole wrestling women stuff. Um, yeah. So yeah, I thought I thought I thought Jim Carrey was awesome as Andy Kaufman. I don't know. A lot of people don't, you know. It's a it's love hate with Jim. Either he's over the top, he's ridiculous. I think Jim was a super talented guy, and I think Jim did a great job. And I think kind of what well, he had a great career. This isn't screw him, but think about it. The thing that that hurt Jim is he came into the world basically famous for bending over and talking out of his ass. So it's like Jim, when you talk, Jim, when you talk out of your ass, it's going to be tough later for people to give you. An Academy Award. He should have gotten nominated. I think. I don't think he ever got nominated by by the by the Oscar uh, Academy Academy Awards. The Oscars. Wow, he never a, even got a nomination. He should have got nominated. He's taking a really strange turn now. He's kind of like this metaphysical guy. Uh, yes. I, I, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe him. But he he's. Uh, it's, no, I've it's, seen it. Where he's just. He's like, this isn't me. I'm just playing a role. And he talks about the universe. Right. You know, not looking, just, not looking to do any good. more movies or any of that kind of stuff. Like, had enough of it. 
I know. Wouldn't it be great if the whole thing was a put on like Andy, though? I was telling my son likes it, too. I was talking to my son about Jim Carrey. I go, maybe the whole thing's a put on. We, we don't think so. But it's like, it'd be great if the whole thing was just uh, uh, he was just messing around. Like, I'm just going to do this and tell everybody up this way. Yeah. No, I but I think he, he really has. I think, I think he really has retired. He doesn't. Yeah. He's made enough money. He doesn't need to do. Yeah. He's kind of. He had such a weird uh, upbringing, too. I mean, he, he was homeless, I think, when he first came to the States. Right. Uh, and and then he brought his family down here, and they all he he supported his whole family, father, and you know his nuclear family, all that kind of stuff. Interesting stuff. Um, did you catch yesterday's show at all with the guy who looked like me? Yes, yes. What? I caught a little bit in the beginning. I, I one of my comments, I went twins, and then I was, but I didn't see. Oh, yeah, okay. I gotta go. I gotta go back and watch it. Uh, well, I saw I'm just some curious. Of, what, no, what but happened? when he put he put his glasses on, he you guys, it was like. Yeah. And then you said something like, this is me. Well, later you said, this is 35 years ago. Here's me. It yeah. did look like you. Uh, maybe not. I don't, you know, give yourself yeah. more credit. Not 35 years ago, man. But it looked uh, like you, young. What What is your take on the whole uh, masculinity crisis thing? Do you? Oh, do you, oh what, you were ta- what you were talking about earlier? Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you said that. Okay, ready? I'm, I'm like five foot five and a half. Right. But I'm a real man. You know? Uh, right. If somebody... If somebody steps to me, what I would do is I would just get you or my friend Carl. I have a friend, Carl. He's 6'6". Six, six. Carl, get in this guy's face. Yeah. I, I'd have people. But no, I, I, I'm not afraid. I wouldn't back down. I mean, I wouldn't really want to fight somebody. But uh, yeah, I don't know about that, man. I mean, uh, the world's changing. And I think that, you know, I'm not yeah. trying to be funny here. But, you know, real men cry, you know. I mean, I cried yesterday when I couldn't. No, I'm just kidding. When I couldn't get on your show. No, but I mean, you know, real men cry, and and and. Well, he was talking about crying too, because uh, he didn't. I didn't harp on it, but he did mention that, uh, uh, like, uh, poetry and some other stuff that he re- was reading yeah. in a movie that yeah. always makes him cry. So I, you know, but it's just people. Well, just are gonna, man, I, people just are gonna help, be help who me. they're gonna what, be. What was his, what was his point? I, forgive me. What his whole thing. His, I don't know exactly his point there. Just get me up to speed. His whole point was uh, uh, men aren't manly enough. We're not protected. What was he saying? Yeah, uh, basically, um, I think he's ultra conservative. He called himself a libertarian. But in his, and I'm not talking about politically here. I'm talking about uh, in mindset of men and women have old fashioned roles that they were meant to have. Uh, men do things better than women. Women do things better than men. And their roles in life were cut out by nature. Uh, and it feels like that's lost in society. And, you know, I don't know how anybody feels about that. But the truth is, we're evolving. The world is changing and roles right. adapt. I have a friend who's an athlete. And I wanted to bring this up to him yesterday. He's an athlete. He's my age. He's uh, well, he's a year younger than me, or, or so. But he's uh, kept man. Uh, his wife is a uh, one of the premier brain surgeons in the United States, and she makes the money, and he stays home and, and takes care of the kids. But he's a manly man. I mean, he's he goes swimming and surfing in January in New York. I mean, he's at, at still at 64, 63 years old, whatever he is. He's uh, you know a very tough guy, and so. I think people change, roles change, uh, attitudes change, and I don't think we have the right to judge somebody else as not being manly enough just because. I agree with you. I mean, 
Yeah, that's because to me, you know, we don't have enough time to talk about this, but it to me, it's like it's a case by case thing, whatever works. Right. I mean, I don't think he can. I get what he's what he's saying makes some sense, but you just can't say now everybody be that way because right. that's what America what America's all about is being different. So it's a case by case thing like my yeah. girlfriend. And I, right. Like I said, I'm five foot five and a half. She's five ten. I always joke that I tell her you're five nine and a quarter, but she let she stop that. She she thinks she's she's about she's almost five ten right so <laughs> but still but still she i still you know it's just the presence right um i don't know she was somewhere like i mean if i i, I would protect her if she's you know i walk her to if she's in a situation where she's like you know i need you that i would be there so there's there's me protecting but she um i'm not ashamed to admit she makes more money than i do right now so she doesn't really like need me to provide you know we just have a, it's what it works for us we have a, a relationship yeah. that's that works and it's not the traditional you know what i mean it's like uh yeah it's not that traditional okay you know you don't have to work anymore honey and uh yeah you know you better, cook, you better well cook i had that attitude in my first marriage big time and and uh, like my wife didn't even work i wouldn't let her work because i want i had just had this idea of traditional yeah. family you know the uh 50s uh, Donna Reed, where the husband works in it. <laughs> Clearly, it could have been better if, uh, if she would have been. If I would have allowed her to work, we would have had a better financial life. <laughs> anyway. Well, yeah, but I mean, at the time, you were doing the best. That's the thing is, you just do the best you can at the time. I mean, you know, I'm not saying, you know, then freedom of speech. I'm not telling this guy he can't say that, but uh, he's probably going to get a lot of pushback. But he can say what he wants, and that's his opinion. But I think I side with you on you can't just blanket it and go. We got to get back to that. I mean, even if we all felt we had to, I mean, how could you? I mean, we live in a world now. There's not just two genders anymore. Yeah, I hear. How uh, many genders? And I, uh, you know, I respect his right to want that in for himself in in life. But these right. guys who, 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 and I brought this up to him yesterday, is that these guys who preach this masculinity uh, crisis, they call it, a masculinity crisis. They're all See, the I don't, I don't, I don't feminine. Men that I I could come up with like Tucker Carlson does not seem like a manly man to me. Ben Shapiro does not seem like a manly man to me. Justin or Jordan Peterson nope. is not no <laughs> manly. Oh no, but right. he preaches this stuff all the time. It's just yeah. very weird. Anyway, yeah. I didn't get a whole lot of feedback on that, and I'm surprised because I would have thought there'd be pushback uh, from from the audience on, yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah, but you yeah. said you still have to check somewhere where there might be comments. Or yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I got I, emails, but I get emails every day, and they're not generally yeah. about today's show. They're generally about yeah. uh, like shows I did a year ago and stuff. Like you know, yeah. every day if I get on average fifteen to twenty emails, they're about stuff they found on YouTube where I said uh, uh, climate change is real, and oh my God, the people who the climate change thing is really it, it drives me crazy. Because they, how do I put this? The people who want to protect the corporate interests were against the idea that the climate is changing. There are corporate interests. And the people who have been brainwashed, for lack of a better word, or, or propagandized right. by, to say that that's not true, miss the actual argument that, they're that their own side makes. Because the argument right. that they make is that 
climate change is cyclical. It happens in every 10,000 years or so and all that kind of stuff. But to deny that there's any kind of climate change goes against all that. If you believe there was an ice age, then you have to believe the climate is changing. You may not believe it's a severe emergency situation, but you yeah. have to acknowledge that climate change in itself is a real thing if that's your position. To say it's yeah, that's not changing. That's anyway. It's like they're missing. Yeah, good point. I mean, you know. Yeah. It's just, so, it's just but I, I get a lot of pushback on that kind of stuff. One guy said that, uh, you know, climate change is a complete hoax. That people, you know, if to, and for it to be a, a hoax, who would con, who would create that hoax? Did people get together and say, you know, to, to dream right. up this conspiracy? Like we got together, there was a big meeting in China of all the heads of the nations and said, we're going to fool them all and tell them the climate is changing. Yes, we're meeting in a secret room. Yeah. Nobody knows. We got, we got, let's let's, let's, let's put it out there. Yeah, it drives me this. nuts. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, uh, now, I, over this summer, you did uh, Shakespeare in the Park. Now, yes, does, does that go away in the fall? Do you do shows through autumn there? I mean, the, the outdoor shows great and question. stuff. Great, great question. You're leading me right to something I was maybe going to try to bring up. I had a little note. Um, Okay, so we do the um, June and the August shows outside in the park. And and by the way, West Side Story was great. We had really good crowds that went really well. So West Side Story in August. Then it kind of quiets down and we don't really do anything until around Christmas we do a fundraiser, which is just, you know, a fundraiser to raise money for for because we're non for profit. And we do like um, the executive director, Ronnie Bell, uh, he's been the executive director for 21 years, does a great job with it. And he wrote this i won't bore you with it but he wrote he rewrote he wrote uh scrooge meets shakespeare's ghost so it is a christmas carol but the ghosts are like the witches from Macbeth. you know julius sees makes the ghosts like shakespeare ghosts it's kind of weird but it, it works so we did we do we've done that a couple of years i wish we would just straight up do the traditional Christ, christmas carol i've never been in it that would be great but um we just do a christmas fundraiser it's usually just two nights two or three nights on a weekend. So that's the focus now is to kind of regroup. Nothing really goes on until December for the Christmas show, which like I said, it's a fundraiser. But that's and indoors, get, right? That's indoors. And I want to get involved with that. Not really as an actor. I, I want to help them. There's going to be a meeting and I want to put my name out there to possibly direct it um, or be involved uh, more, more that way with this Christmas show coming up. And then we do, we don't always do, but if we can, we try to do an indoor show in april and because it's just you know a, a, a community theater group we can do whatever we could do death of salesman we could do whatever we could do any it doesn't have to be shakespeare a lot of times it's either kind of related to shakespeare uh or you could just do a shakespeare you know we could do king lear in april um i don't know what's set up for this we, i think we have something that's again it's not really shakespeare but it's a little bit related to shakespeare coming up this april so really it's just the april it's really just three shows I almost want to say like three and a half because it's the three and then and then the fundraiser uh, in December. I'm going to be doing. So, uh, we I've been doing this the last four or five years now, even through COVID we did this uh, a Christmas show on a float uh, in a parade, a Christmas parade, and it's it's brutal. It's generally the they always pick the coldest day of the year to do this stuff. Oh my gosh! And, and then I'm on oh, a, a float. Yeah, it's just brutal. It's really tough. I, but you know, we get through it. I'm not a big fan of uh, Christmas 
traditional movies. Yeah, movies. Right. The movie Scrooge. You know, I like A Wonderful Life, but I've seen it five million times now. You've seen um, you never you never need to watch it again. It's a wonderful yeah. life, right? Miracle and on Thirty Fourth Street. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and there's three thousand different takes on Scrooge and and you know uh, Christmas Carol. Yeah. I've had enough of that. Uh, <laughs> I, hear you. I hear you man yeah it gets come on and it's weird you notice they don't really what's going on with that you know i mean i don't want to get all like not conspiracy but but thinking but like i mean why don't they you know that they writers why don't we see new i don't really see any new really good christmas movies or shows they yeah it's like what's going on there you still got to do like the old ones and you're right i mean how many times can you i just think as an actor i've always liked and wanted to be maybe uh Bob Cratchit, or just as an actor, wanted to play that role, or or maybe like the, the <laughs> nephew in it. I've always thought I like it, but yeah, it's I, you know, it's um, it's I mean, it's so like what's the word overdone? It's like okay, yeah, every knows yeah. that one, yeah, Scrooge, every knows Scrooge, you know. Yeah, and you know anything that gets overdone, you know, loses my interest. Now, uh, speaking of overdone. Yeah. Taylor Swift, are you a fan? Are you uh she's probably uh I don't know. I'm You're, not. Am I gonna am I getting am I gonna get hate mail? I are just, you a Gen X guy? You're a Gen X guy and you're probably she's more a millennial millennial. Yeah, I just thing, right? I don't see it. I mean, you know, she's she's okay. I mean, I don't I don't know. I don't know what the big I don't think she's um I don't think her uh talent level reaches her, her fame her celebrity yeah like i, like I saw I, somebody go like she's I, I i saw someone go she's like michael jackson level and um to me michael jackson he his talent that made sense that lines up with, with you know that, i don't you know. know i i i really have not analyzed her from a, a talent perspective but i do think her celebrity is overdone to the point where if she goes to a football game it's on everybody's conversation list, and that, it's it's really it's, wacky to me. Like it's you, weird. <laughs> um, but the reason, because the other day the football games thing, and then last night because I wasn't feeling well, uh, and I never do this, but I was just like laying in bed and, and scrolling through Netflix on my phone, and I caught this uh, uh, Miss America or something, a documentary of featuring her, and it was talking, you know, her parents and all this stuff. And it seems like her father was rich from the get-go and had this idea of just making her into a star right from the time she was born and she was pushed oh, into it. That's and, almost worse. That almost makes me feel worse. It's so contrived, right? Isn't that worse? Right. And But she even what, talks. What she, it's like, what did she want to be? Taylor, what right. did you want to be? Well, not this, but daddy made me. Oh, come on. Right, and I didn't watch the whole thing, but I, my what 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 I did because I couldn't. I, I mean, I couldn't stomach the whole thing. But she, there's a point where in, in the teaser that she's saying, "I became who they wanted me to become," and I'm like, she's probably at the point of her life, a young adult, where so sooner or later it's going to come in come back to her and she's going to start to resent like this is i didn't choose this life they chose this life for me yeah i i don't think i don't think deep down she could be happy yeah i don't want to deep here now and go by i don't know how she i mean someone will go jay what are you talking about I mean, money and you know fame fame is so overrated and i'm gonna sound like a hypocrite because i want everybody to watch my page but i don't know it's like i i don't want to be famous i just want to kind of do my passion is to get up in front of people maybe make them laugh do a play but i don't i don't know how much i i think fame is 
I agree. Scary. I think the, the, the money's what, you're struggling, what you're struggling with here is we all want right. an audience. You, if you wouldn't be right. in the performing arts if you didn't want an audience. But, but I don't I, want. I, I don't want people to recognize me when I walk down the street. And I don't that. either. No way. That would be just you know, that would be just you would not have any privacy. Right? Yeah. Get in your face, wanting to talk to you, wanting an autograph. I mean, I don't think fame. No, I don't think fame is a good thing. Uh, I was actually thinking that when I was when I was walking, I was going for a walk. I was thinking, you know. If I could just, you know, this Jamie Ranty comedy uh, uh, page that I have, if there was like just, you know, even just 50 to 100 really good, I don't want to call them fans, but like followers that like like it, right? That if I get those people into a room and do my stand-up, I would kill. That's what it's all about. When you do stand-up, it's not everybody. I know a lot of people don't like what I do, but some do. I mean, I've met people who are like, man, you're so funny. You're hilarious. Well, thank you. And then other people are like, wow, I don't, I don't get it, man. And I get that. You can't be... That's why stand-up comedy is a double-edged. That's a weird thing because you're trying to what please everybody. I got, I got to get more. No, no, you just got to do your thing, man. So you do your yeah, thing. Yeah. Uh, like you said, just just a uh, um, like what? Okay, what would be perfect for you? Like you, do you like like a club? Like just two hundred people? What What is a good audience for you? What's the number? Do you want thousands? No. What do you? Um, right. I have played for thousands. The biggest audience I ever played awesome. for was about one hundred thirty-five thousand people. Um, what? Oh, yeah, awesome. yeah, that was so many, many that. years ago. Um, generally, there are like twice a year I will play for thirty-five thousand people. Uh, at the, but it's a weird thing because not all of them are paying attention to the the, the band on on stage. It's uh, like festivals and stuff, and they're you know doing all sorts of stuff. But there are that many people in attendance. But um, my favorite performing situation is in a small pub that is packed with people i don't care if i don't care if that number is 20 people it's just so small that it becomes like sardines in the place i like that situation (laughs) right so i know i hear what you're saying so like it doesn't really matter the size of the room the room just has to be full there you go because you could be in a room that could fit like 80 but there's right. 12 people that feel so, oh, there's 12 people. We're doing comedy for 12. The band a, room that I, fits, yeah. a room that fits 30 and there's 10 people that you want the 30 packed. Yes. The the energy in the room is huge. Great point. Yes. Right. The yes. band, that I mean, I, the, most, the Rock the Rockin' 45s, we started on the Nautical Mile in a place called Water Lilies. We were there three nights a week. And the place at that time held 75 people. Now it holds more. They've expanded it. But it legally held 75 people. And there would be 80 to 90 people in there every time we played. And everybody in the room feels like they are part of the show, part of the band. They're up yes. front. And that, to me, was heaven. I love that situation. But right on the get- money, yep. You don't get that on a stage when you're separated from people. I don't like being like on a high stage separated from people. I suppose as an actor, that's probably preferred. (laughs) I know it's weird that you say that I've experienced that. It was tough. I liked it, but man, it was, it was a little intimidating. I did uh, at the red house. They used to have, they don't anymore. They used to have a black box theater. It was like 45 people like in an L and they were right up on you. I mean, I could thank God the way the lighting was, I couldn't really see faces, but I was very close to the audience and the intimacy of as you're playing your role and it was dramatic, it was great, but it was, it was hard. I, I like when they're back, you know, it's dark and they're back a little bit and you're creating the fourth wall. In most cases, you don't interact with the audience. You're just playing, you're just Joe, whatever. So I like, 
darkness and some not tons of space, but some space. Is I prefer as an actor. Yeah. But real quick, the, the most people I ever did a comedy show for was almost two hundred, and w- w- it was a great show. I wasn't intimidated. I did well with it, but I wasn't thinking, "Yeah, man, I I was just t- good with it." But I wasn't going, "Okay, now I want five hundred. No, I was just part of a show. Um, a friend of mine, now a friend of mine, the guy who produced it, and he also is part of it as well as comedian. He, um, you know, like all comedians, God bless him. You talk about it now, he goes, yeah, we had like over, you know, the, the story always, the number always grows. He has, yeah, remember that show we did? It was like, you know, over 200. It's like, I know, I know it wasn't over 200, but it was a good, it was a good, it was like about 180 and it was pretty much a full room. Uh, that was a great show, but yeah, it, again, it was just because they, they were into the, it didn't really matter the number. Like you said, the energy I've done shows where we had 40 people. It was kind of packed and it, and it was a good, a good comedy show because the energy. Yeah. I, I like to be able to smell the beer on their breath when they're singing along. There you go. Yes. <laughs> and then you just start jamming, man. Start jamming. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, as I mentioned, you're a Gen X. Uh, yeah. Your, fa- your parents grew were they Depression era people or your grandparents Depression era people? Uh, it'd be my grandparents, right? Yeah, because they would. Yeah, because my my dad was born in 1940 and my mom was born in 1942. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Cause my guest in the next hour has written a book about, I think it's about her grandmother uh, okay. who was widowed at the beginning of the depression and had a family to take care of. And oh, I was wow. thinking about my own family, my mother and father's uh, upbringing. My mom was born a month before the depression hit. Uh, she was born in August of 1929. Uh, the, okay. the, like five weeks before like the first week of October was when the, the market crashed so she was a baby an infant uh during that period uh, during the whole de- you know beginning of the depression and she grew up in the depression my father was a year older so he was pretty he was an infant too he was still a and right. both of them had very different experiences i know my mom her father was a sanitation worker in new york city never lost his job and kept working through the whole thing that was almost like being rich because you weren't poor you weren't destitute in those times just an interesting time we have no appreciation for or we've kind of lost appreciation for what that must have been like and and understand you know it's just my parents not my grandparents and i'm separated from it enough that it's, it's really hard for me to appreciate it and i was thinking about last night i think it's an important kind of uh thing to think about every once in a while of what you know, because we take so much for granted here, and and we talk about in, in the political world, you always hear about how bad things are right now. Yeah, you have no idea. <laughs> we have no right. idea. Right, it's so true. It's it's almost like I don't know. See, that's a whole other. But we don't have enough time. It's kind of like what's. I'm not saying it's fake news, but what's pushed, what's thrown at us all the time is a lot of negativity. I think a lot of times you just gotta don't don't rabbit hole, don't go on your phone so much. I mean, how do you tell? How do you tell a Generation Z, like my son's age, 23? How do you tell someone in Generation Z? Um, wow. You know, like, don't be on your phone. They don't, even, they don't even know what that means. In fact, they drive so bad. Okay, I don't know how you, how you feel about this, but, you know, I'm I'm 55 in my 50s now. I get nervous when I hear about self-driving cars. I'm like, no way. But you know what? Younger kids drive so bad. If they come up with a stat that says self-driving is safer that than yes then i don't want you driving all the young kids don't drive you you get in your self-driving car then you won't hit me 
I'm a responsible driver. I will drive my own car and we'll all be happy. I mean, I, I can't see myself sitting in a self drive. Have you heard about these? I don't know if they're, they're really going to get into the world just yet, but. Well, here's the thing. Um, <laughs> I, I hear what you're saying. Like they could be safer, but think about the tech tech problems you had yesterday, uh, just with this oh, kind of stuff, uh, and and scale that up to now cars. Like just say a computer in a car just gone haywire, or or something frequent buggy, and now all of a Absolutely. sudden it's it's taking people out, <laughs> killing people. That that would be horrible, and that's why that's why. Um, I guess I'm only half serious. I'm kind of joking, kind of serious with that point about the Generation Z. Me, I, I can't see myself ever. I've been driving too long myself. I, I don't think I could sit in a self-driving car ever. Now, earlier in the week. I'm not in control. Or, or was it last week? I think it was last week. Uh, Willie yep. had a story about the first flying cars uh, coming out. Uh, and they're available. And they're as cheap as a Tesla. Now, that's not cheap. But, I mean, it's not like millions of dollars to own a flying car. Uh, that troubles me and scares the shit out of me. Like, I don't want, you don't have to get a pilot's license. You just need a driver's license. Come on. (laughs) That's disaster. That is a recipe for disaster, man. Oh my God. I will just be staying in the house. I I never want to, but I'll get my work from home job. I'm working from home. I'm not going out there. See him zip it by your window. I mean, wait, come on. Even that will work from home job. And all of a sudden it falls on your house. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the, all that I could see LA being like the first um, place to adopt it because there's the traffic is just such a nightmare out there. They would be early adopters of it, but I all could also could see like massive disasters of things going wrong. Is that just the worst? It's just not. It's I'm laughing. It's so bad. I'm laughing. I mean, it's like, hey, honey, what's the weather like today? Well, I'll go open the window. Oh, there's a car coming right at us. Yeah. There's a flying car coming right at us. We're in trouble. Yeah. Bam. Not look not looking forward to the flying car revolution myself. Uh, or or yeah. the self-driving. Not, not at all. Yeah, well, self-driving stuff. Uh, I think we have. I've been in a car, a Tesla that had self-driving stuff in it. Uh, it's against the law here in New York. They're not supposed to have those cars. I think this car was like from another state that, that was imported here. And the guy demoed. But I was nervous for it. And. The power in those cars sometimes, uh, you know, it take, blows you back when the, the pickup, it just takes off from the starting line. Really powerful Please. stuff. I'm not sure I want that in a self-driving car, like the superpower stuff. If you're going to have a self-driving car, max it out and put a governor on it so it can't be like doing 160 miles an hour because the last thing. No, I no. <laughs> right. yeah. I, the fastest I would want to go is like 42. I wouldn't want to go. Yeah. But wait, now, where, where were you sitting? Were you sitting in the back? Were you I was sitting? in the passenger seat. It was a two-seater Tesla. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting. St- I mean, it's impressive in, on, on one level, but it's also scary as hell when you think about what could go wrong. We've, I, you know, you know, you had tech problems yesterday, and I, I know it's not the same yeah. thing, but computers are computers, and they do fail. Right. They yeah. fail. They're not and infallible. You, just you don't want to fail at the worst possible time when you're in a bad spot, and then you're in trouble. Yeah. Don't need that. No. Uh, right. Uh, so yeah. Well, it, it's been good catching up with you. And do come back. You're welcome thanks. here anytime you want. Want to come in? Uh, just give so me much, some Fred. notice. Uh, I hope I hope you feel better. I didn't, I didn't dress that at all. You're not feeling good. I hope you feel better, man. There's nothing worse than being sick. Yeah. And you're a soldier. You know what? 
people on show. my on my Facebook page keep telling me feel better, and I'm like, no, um, <laughs> don't tell me what to do. Don't don't, <laughs> don't tell me what to do. Uh, not that okay, I love. Right, don't tell me. I, well, I hope you feel better. I'm I know. I, I, it's better. not that I like like feeling miserable. I just know that these things run their course, and feeling telling me to feel better just reminds me that I don't feel good. I I can complain all my all I want myself, but don't remind me that I'm I feel like shit. I'll remind myself enough. <laughs> yes, yes. This always makes me all feel right. better, though. I mean, uh, as much as uh, I I'm a chronic complainer, and I I always talk about how tired I am in the morning and all that stuff. I couldn't imagine starting my day any other way anymore. I mean, uh, talking to people uh, energizes me, and it gives me uh, something great, me out of myself. Yeah, I, I love I love watching it. I don't know if you see. I watch it as much as I can. I can't watch it every day, but I, I catch it when I can. It's uh, I, appreciate I love. Take it in the I car. Get the app. Uh, I, I don't push this enough, but the, my on for live three sixty five. You can listen in your car if you have Bluetooth, and most cars do now. Almost every car has Bluetooth. Uh, get the app and listen in the car. Take it with you. Take us on the road with you. We have lots of people doing that now. Yes, and that audience. Coffee with the dog. Coffee with the dog on the road, people. Yes, got it. Awesome. There you go. Well, well, Jay, thanks for for being here, man. Yep. Have a great day and uh, enjoy the sunshine because I don't, I can't. Uh, bye, for, bye for <laughs> I, now. I hope you feel better. I hope you get the sun soon. Thanks, All Matt. Right. We'll, we'll see. You. Thanks so much. Take, oh wait, wait. What's that oh, guy's yeah. name again? For the funny bone. So oh, Dave like Landau. A, I'll be in touch with you about that. I'm gonna, yeah, me, I'm gonna yeah. write to him. I'll get the dates. I'll let you know, and we'll see if he's open to it. And we'll be in yeah. Touch about do a little video. It'd be great. Shoot a little video with him. Absolutely. Cool. All right, man. Thanks. Have a great day. See you later. Bye. Jay Morenti, folks, uh, follow him on Facebook. I will put the link uh, in the description uh, wherever we can put the links in the description. YouTube's kind of cracking down on that right now. Um, Vinny Vanelli left a piece uh, uh, for as a man on the street thing I'm going to play right now, um, or I'm going to try to play right now. Uh, got another another thing open here. Uh, Vinny Stars here. Stars and Stripes. It's called Stars and Stripes. Yes, several times. I think the greatest country on the planet. Which country are you in right now? Well, Canada. I know it's not polite to say it, but I love America, man. We're here in beautiful downtown Toronto, and we're trying to get a gauge on Canadian-American relations. Have you ever been to America? Not really. No. Have you ever been to America? I crossed the border with my mom for a hot dog, but that was about it. Where in America would you want to go? Las Vegas. Uh, Boston. I'm half Irish, so... You look half Irish. Well, I speak kind of Irish to myself, don't I? Sure. And you guys are from... Texas. You're not Canadian? Yes. And I will go to Harvard University and I will study mathematics. From the UK. But you love our country. I definitely do, yeah. More than America. How many states are there in America? Over 20. Over 50? 52. 51, but if you count Alaska, it's only 50. <laughs> How many provinces are in Canada? About 13 or 12. In Canada? Yeah. Don't ask me that. Five. 12? I just want to make sure you lived here your entire life. <laughs> 14. Or seven, I think. Seven or 14? Yeah. Ten. How many territories? I don't know. Seven is the number of uh, oceans on the planet, and 14, I think, is a very lucky number for if you want to just go ahead and lie. 14 is a good number. <laughs> so Harvard, you said, right? Harvard, yeah. Okay. Does America have a president or a prime minister? Prime minister. America president. America has a president. They have a president. What's his name? Biden. Biden. I know Donald Trump. He's my favorite president uh, of the USA. Okay. What's your president's name? I don't know. Do you know what our prime minister's name is? No, I don't know. What's our prime minister's name? Justin Trudeau. Oh. And I see you're a fan, sir. 
Oh yeah, I'm definitely a fan. Do you notice any differences between America and Canada? Poutine, we have loaded fries. There's not the same type of buses there? What's the difference? Actually, same. Kilometers and miles they use on the roads. Your squirrels are black. Oh, okay. What color are your squirrels? They're brown. Do you know the American National Anthem? No. No. Oh, say can you see oh, by say. the dawn's early light? Are you my echo? Oh, oh man. It's not working. Do you know the Canadian national anthem? No. We're sending you back to Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> so where are you going next here in Canada? Um, we're gonna try to find the bathroom. <laughs> when you're over 40, you need to use the washroom all the time. This is good info. Wow. Uh, VinnyComedy.com. You know, Vinny seems to uh, really have a thing for national anthems. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't necessarily uh, get that, but uh, we appreciate his work there. Now, the pirate guy is a Canadian pirate guy. I, I call him a pirate guy, but he, he looked like a pirate. Um, I don't know what to make of that. Uh, why, why you guy? dressed like a pirate and all talking uh shiver me timbers <laughs> in canada the other part of that is um man people are stupid uneducated I, I i we tend to think it's just the united states where people the education uh system is failing but oh my god you don't know how many state people one guy said there are 51 states in the united states but if you count alaska is only 50. That doesn't make any sense no matter how you look at it. First, it's 50 states in America, folks. If you don't know that. But if you count Alaska, that should make it. <laughs> if you're adding one to counting that isn't, that would make it one more, not one less. The whole And this guy's claiming he went to Harvard. They don't know how many uh, provinces are in their own country. That's a little disturbing. I know there are people in America who don't know there are 50 states, which is disturbing. I mean, this is basic grammar school stuff, you know, basic education stuff. Uh, they don't know if they have a president or prime minister in their own country, and they don't know his, own, his name, most of them. I mean, the pirate guy knew Trudeau. <laughs> the pirate guy. Uh, but very disturbed. Oh, there goes Jordan Peterson, the manly man. These postmodernists don't know their own country. How could you be a man if you don't know your own country? Um, it's just very, very disturbing to me, the lack of civics and training. And so it's not just the United States, folks. It's everywhere. People are just stupid. Not stupid that in, in terms of unintelligent but not educated at all, even on the basic level uh, of civics and stuff in their own home country. Quite disturbing, quite disturbing. Anyway, I'm going to uh, take a short break uh, for commercial. Uh, we, today we are brought to you by True Fire. Also, FunWise Capital, I want to say, if you got a business or a business idea, don't have a business yet, but you need money for your business, go to FunWise.com, apply.FunWise.com slash MindDog and get money. Uh, it's really simple. If you got uh, a good idea and, and have it well documented and got your, your ducks in a row, you can get money to start a business 
Or if you have a business and you need funding to grow your business or advance your business ideas, they can help you get money. Uh, apply.fundwise.com. F-U-N-D. I know it's, uh, with the stuff he knows, it doesn't even sound like I'm saying fundwise. It sounds like I'm saying fundwise. Fundwise.com slash mindog. Apply.fundwise.com slash mindog. We are also brought to you by TrueFire. If you want to learn how to play guitar online, best place to do that is TrueFire. Uh, you can learn from some of the best players, teachers on the planet. No matter what your level, advanced, uh, intermediate, or beginner, you're going to learn uh, what you want to learn at your own pace. Truefire.com. Check it out. Over 2 million guitar players worldwide learn, practice, and play with Truefire. Our learning tools and massive library of video lessons will ignite your technical skills, harmonic knowledge, rhythm playing, and soloing chops. Truefire's educators are the best in the biz, from Grammy Award winners to world-renowned artists. You'll have access to an unparalleled faculty of over 300 top-notch blues, rock, jazz, country, fingerstyle, and acoustic guitar educators. Using our desktop and mobile apps, you'll work with Truefire's multi-angle video lessons on any device, anytime, anywhere. Integrated learning tools such as video synced tab and notation, slow-mo, looping, practice jam tracks, and many more handy controls accelerate your learning experience. Truefire style-specific learning paths guide you every step of the way. Use our assessment tools to find your starting point, then follow our lesson recommendations and track your progress as you work through your personalized Truefire study plan. Progress faster with private one-on-one instruction, group lessons, multi-track video jams, live streams, song lessons, student forums, Truefire's Riff magazine, premium jam tracks, and much, much more. With thousands of five-star ratings and reviews from amateur and pro players alike, you'll find yourself in good company with the world's most comprehensive guitar learning platform. Grab your guitar and ignite your musicality. Sign up free for an all-access trial today. You know it works. It really works. Uh, Truefire uh, has proven results within our own audience. This is absolutely true. Some uh, young man, I, I have to look it up. A couple of weeks ago, a kid who signed up to Truefire because he heard about it on this program. I don't know how if he's a kid. Uh, he seemed like a young man, and you can't tell this stuff from an email. But um, he had signed up, and he uh, sent. He was a beginner, complete beginner. Signed up for uh, True Fire and sent a, a video of him playing. Now he listen. He wasn't. He wasn't Steve Vai. He wasn't like Super Shredder, but he was playing rock and roll, and uh, you know, putting songs over very well. Uh, in a very short time, I think six weeks. He said took him to get where he was he on the video he plays samples uh he didn't play a whole song on any one of them uh but he played probably uh three or four parts of three or four songs very impressive so it works sign up if you want to learn how to play guitar and it's cheap i think your free month uh, first month is free i think that i don't want to speak out of school here maybe maybe i'm wrong here 
Uh, anyway, Carl, the man, the man, Carl, man, the man, uh, will be ho- hosting the show on Thursday. I have my first media interview as a congressional candidate. I'm a little nervous about it uh, because because why? Because <laughs> because I don't really want to get into all the minutia of. Uh, the divisive politics. I'm running as an independent. Um, everybody knows that I um, am not a Trumper. I think Donald Trump not only ruined the country, but ruined the Republican Party. Uh, I think we need two parties, and this is something I've said a million times. I think we need two strong parties in a two-party system, a one-party system We've seen what that does. We have historical references of how bad a one-party system can be. So I don't want to even uh, go near that. But I don't want to get into conversations about Democrat, Republican, or you know, playing favorites of. And obviously, right now, I think the Republican Party is in the shitter. I think that's largely, almost entirely due to the influence of Donald Trump. Uh, but I don't want to get into that. I just want to talk about the one issue, the only reason I'm running for Congress, is to highlight the dirty money, the congressional, everybody in Congress, almost everybody or everybody, is bought and paid for by somebody else. In other words, they're not working for you. They're supposed to be representing you. That's why they're called representatives. They are your representative, but they're not representing your interest. They're representing the interest of corporations or people that bought and paid for their seat. And I want to expose every single one of them. I want to call them out on all of it and say, who do you work for? Who paid for your seat? Anyway, so I'm a little nervous about the uh, the interview. I have not uh, obviously done an interview, a media interview for my political campaign. By the way, uh, do I have the banner? Yeah, yeah, Matt Matt Napo for Congress, twenty thirty four in New York three. Now George Santos uh, currently holds that seat, and I'm going to challenge George Santos to come on the program and debate me. Now he's obviously this is my turf, and he's probably going to be a little reluctant to do that, and he's probably reluctant to do any media stuff. He's, listen, he's under indictment for fraud and money money laundering and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the whole thing with (laughs) the, uh, interview on Thursday is I want to call out that the district should be embarrassed that they sent this guy to Congress. I mean, he was, it was pretty clear even when he was running that he was a pathological liar about everything. Everything on his resume was made up. Everything. I mean, even his name, he has several aliases. Uh, so the, the district has a lot to make up for. Not that I'm necessarily going to be um, something to write home about or brag about, but my campaign, <laughs> my campaign motto is, listen, you voted for worse. Uh, and they have, and they should be embarrassed, and they have, to, they have, <laughs> uh, they have a lot to make up for. Uh, my guest is here, so let's move on. Uh, earlier in the program, when Jay was here, we we're talking a little bit about the Great Depression. 
and <coughs> excuse me, still a little under the weather here. My mom, as I mentioned, was born in August of 1929. The Great Depression hit in October of 1929. So she's six weeks old. Uh, my father was a year and four weeks old when uh, when the Great, Great Depression hit. They both grew up very different uh, experiences, but managed to live through those times. And one of my greatest regrets while they were alive was never really understanding what that was like going through the Great Depression uh, as a young child and living through it their formative years completely from, you know, grammar school. I, and I was thinking about last night, starting grammar school is like I was going to kindergarten in 1934 in the height of the Depression. What that might, well, there's bread lines and all that kind of stuff. It, it's hard to wrap your head around. Anyway, uh, Gail Pinner, I hope Pinner is exactly the way I'm supposed to pronounce that, is a retired academic who was finally pursuing her career she thought she'd have when she was 12. She doesn't recommend waiting as long as uh, she did to pursue your dreams. Gail is interested in strong women, resilience, and uh, humor and hope that can... Uh, help us get through difficult times. Uh, she has written a book called A High Courage, which I'm not sure if it's a novel, a memoir, or nonfiction about her grand. I think it's a grandmother. might be a mother, but I think it's her grandmother's. Uh, be, becoming a widow and having to um, raise a family during those years. She's here now, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome in, Gail Pinner, to uh, Coffee with the Dog. Gail, welcome. Hi there, and it is Gail Piner. So oh, Piner, I'm sorry. That's okay. Yeah, I apologize. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, so, are we talking about your mother or grandmother? Well, actually, both. The story, the main story, is about my grandmother. She's the mother who was um, widowed at age 29, left with six children under the age of 13. And my mother is one of those children. So, my mother is a character in this novel. It is a novelized version of what happened because I only knew the very um, bare bones of this story. It was taken for granted in our family. And um, it, it was just openly, you know, discussed, you know, thing or referenced, I would say, about things that uh, happened um, during that period. But they didn't sit around, you know, with long conversations. It was just a casual, oh, yeah, you know, when daddy died or when Tom died and, um, you know, what I had to do with you kids. And so I grew up taking it for granted. And as I guess so many kids do, we're much more focused on our own lives. We right. think our lives are way more interesting. And as a young adult, I started realizing how phenomenal this story was. And unfortunately, I always felt a little hesitant to ask my grandmother about it. I didn't want her to think that I was a critical or questioning her decisions, um, th that troubled me that she would ever think such a thing as I loved her dearly. She was an amazing woman, very feisty, very polite Southern woman, but you know, she really that's, had, had. It's interesting that you, you thought about it because I have regrets that I didn't even think about, you know, I, like you said, I think I took it for granted and I did spend a lot of time with my grandfather, uh, who was he was probably thirty years old when the thirty five years old when the depression hit, uh, but 
uh, I did never asked him about it. And I, part of my regrets uh, in, as I get older at this stage of my life is that I had a great opportunity to learn about a critical time that I think, um, every, and I, we were talking about this earlier in the program, I think we all take for granted you hear in the news sometimes how bad things are in America right now. People have no idea what bad really is. And I had a great opportunity to learn firsthand from people and I didn't take it. And that's one of my greatest regrets in life. I I so agree with you. And one of the uh, things I'd like to get across with my book is that we all have, every family has amazing stories. Every family, every generation has stories. Our own lives will be amazing two or three generations away. Uh, And yet the everyday things like, how did you spend major holidays? What did you do? What did you eat? Uh, When did you start celebrating? You know, did you put your tree up the night before Christmas? Or did you put your tree up, you know, Thanksgiving Day, as so many of us do? Uh, Things change in such a continuous, subtle way that we tend not to have these huge breaks. And so to anyone who has children, grandchildren, don't worry about boring them. Tell them anyway, because they will come to treasure it. And if you can bring yourself to write anything, I have a few letters that my grandmother wrote to me when I was off in graduate school in upstate New York, um, where she hoped I would not fall in love with a Yankee, by the way. And then at the end said, honey, I'm just kidding about that. Not really. But I think that these little things that we, that some people might hold themselves back. They think I'm not a writer. Uh, I I don't have really good English skills. I don't have, you know, spelling, punctuation. Nobody will care. Nobody will care about that. What they will care about is how granddaddy proposed to you. You know, where you went, did you have a honeymoon? Where did you go? I had to make up my grandmother's wedding night. Wow. Can I tell you that's a little awkward? Yeah, no. I I, it's I, extremely I, G-rated. It is my grandmother. Right. But um, I had to imagine that she went to this fabulous place here. I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina. Wrightsville Beach is, you know, adjacent. And there was this fabulous pavilion called Lumina Pavilion that I think most people would be amazed that it existed at that time. It was actually built to show off the power of electricity. It was a three-story monster pavilion with, uh, it had bowling alleys on one level. It had uh, a huge, the main thing was the huge dance floor. And um, with live bands and very famous musicians would come and play. And people dressed to the nines to go there. So, um, and all, the, all three stories were so lit up with enormous light bulbs that sailors could use it as a landmark out to sea. Wow. And uh, trivia point, do you know, do you recall who David Brinkley was? Uh, no. Hunt, Huntley Brinkley was. Oh, the, the news guy. Yeah, David Brinkley. Yeah. Yes, okay. he's from, was from Wilmington, Wilmington native. And one of his first jobs was to change the light bulbs on the Lumina. So it was this enormous thing. So I wanted to weave that into my story. So I have them spending their um, wedding night at a hotel right next door. And oh, this place, by the way, had a full-size movie screen, 
out in the surf where they would show silent movies because that's what they had been. So Charlie Chaplin movies would be shown and people would sit on the beaches or on the decks of the pavilion and watch a full length movie. Wow. Um, is that not phenomenal? The that thing is definitely. That, that, you know, we have forgotten ever because of course it's, it got torn down around 1970, but and it was pretty derelict, but it used to be people came from all up and down the East coast to go to the Lumina. So that I have that in up. there. Um, there was a beach trolley that my mother, I grew up hearing my mother talk about taking the beach trolley from downtown Wilmington by the Cape Fear River all the way to Wrightsville Beach. And that was the only way you could get onto the beach. They didn't have roads. They had a, um, tra uh, what do you call it, pilings or whatever for the trolley car to go to. So I picture my mother as this young 18-year-old getting uh, on the trolley car with her girlfriends and what a fun thing that must have been to go through all the way through town it would had to have been at least a half hour ride just to go to the beach interesting now uh there's a whole lot that to talk to ask you about here first of all uh, wilmington north carolina are, are you did you have a southern uh uh experience growing up or did you grow up in the north or where, where did you grow up well uh Yes to both of those. I went, my, my father was in the Navy. So I spent um, from three and a half to five and a half in Groton in New London, Connecticut, where I went to kindergarten, which the state of North Carolina at that time in the 50s did not have kindergarten. So I had a, a bit of a leg up, but apparently that's when my accent locked in. So I came home and I heard, and this is not an exaggeration, Almost every day of my life until I was 18, honey, you're just not from here, are you? Because <laughs> we didn't have a lot of outsiders living here. Now, now I have a theory that the state of New Jersey is empty. They're my, all here. My brother lives in North Carolina, and he yeah. says everybody here is from New York. Exactly. <laughs> New York or New Jersey. You know, my plumber shows up. I go, okay, New Jersey or New York? You go, oh, New Jersey. It's just to meet someone from, and I was born and raised here, but I moved away for almost 40 years. So right. when I retired, I, I came back. The but, reason this interests me is because I'm thinking about my own past, and both my parents had very different experiences during the Great Depression. I think of the South as still kind of uh, like divided between aristocracy and, and poverty. Uh, and nor, and the picture on the cover looks like a woman who was probably somehow connect, connected to the aristocracy or the, the you know, the, the beauty of the South, the big Victorian houses and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it, it just takes me back to that. But I know that there were, you know, vastly different experiences. Even up here, my, my mother and father had very different experiences in the Great Depression. Uh, high courage. What is the what is the meaning of that, and what is the life that your grandmother came from? I know she was a widow at the mm. time, but was she was she? I hate to use it, upper class, middle class. No, uh, she came from farmers. Farm. So this is actually a um, very accurate rendition of her house, which, oops, which still stands uh, two miles from where I'm sitting. And you can see the, the sound and the ocean from her property. So the artist who did this did an amazing job. And oddly enough, 
The woman on the cover who is so gorgeous looks so much like my Aunt Irene, who looked like my her mother, my grandmother, that it's kind of spooky because <laughs> I certainly didn't. I just said she has to have blue eyes and, you know, put a hat on her. And I, I really wanted to obscure most of the face, but uh, it didn't work out that way. But anyway, no, they were a farming family. My grandmother actually was a, perhaps a little bit better off than her sister. She had four sisters who, uh, but my, my grandmother, Mary, in the book, um, married Tom, who was actually a farm manager. So he wasn't uh, necessarily a farmer himself. I'm sure they had a family, you know, vegetable plot because we all do. Um, but he managed five or six farms that were owned by some landowner. So they were in this, um, you know, slightly elevated from maybe farm class, but not by much. And they certainly weren't wealthy at all. And one of the reasons that I wanted to, one of the many reasons I wanted to write it, uh, the main one being to honor my grandmother and her strength and her courage, but also to show what it might have been like for people who weren't living in poverty, who, um, you know, had steady work. Um, but they certainly were not whooping it up at the Lumina normally. Yeah. They were not of that class. They weren't even uh, merchant class, you know, much less upper crust. And I do have an upper crust lady in here. Mary has uh, a friend uh, that I give her. And the house that I put uh, where this friend lives on Front Street in Wilmington is uh, a real house, actually, that I was a doyen for during one of our Azalea festivals. And it was put on public showing. Um, very, very fancy, very wealthy. So you had all these different, you know, like any place, you had different levels of society. But my grandmother's was definitely very modest. She had a sixth grade education. So when she was widowed at age 29, um, the sudden death of her husband, who was 10 years older than she was, she had six children, four months old to 12 years old. She had no source of income, what were the chances of her finding a job? Did I mention sixth grade education? And at right. that time, it was October 1928. Um, she lives out in the country. You know, she's not living right downtown. So she can't drive. Uh, she can read and write, which my grandfather could not. And um, it, it was the fact that they survived is amazing. I think the the instant thought would be well she's got four she's got four you know sisters and tom had a big family brothers and sisters move in there well yes and no they also had their own big families so for six other people to move in with them mary and her five children her, her sorry her six children that was just not viable and plus the sisters are you know every year or two they're having another baby another baby so um, it wasn't really uh, feasible. The only offer, and certainly I had to make up quite a bit since I only knew the bare bones of this, but the one thing I did not make up was that my grandfather's brothers, and actually there were four of them in the book, I just reduce it to two, Otis and Elam, and I love those names. That was not their names, by the way, although there's our family name, those names are in my family tree. But Otis and Elam, wanted to take the children. They gave her, they were very magnanimous. Not only would they take all of Tom's farm tools and animals and all of his possessions, 
doing her such a favor, but that he would, they would also take the six children. And my grandmother told me that she was very sure that all she wanted was, they, all they wanted was free labor on their tobacco farms. And they would never send her children to school and her children, of course, would never inherit. Each one of those men had at least five kids already, and they were only in their 30s. Wow. Um, so she she could see that if she let them stay in the family, they were going to have horrible lives. And she really wanted them to at least have a high school education. That was the best they could dream of at that time. And um, And that really happened. And so the courage is that here is this woman who's raised in the South at that period of time. They're raised to be always smiling, agreeable, obeying men, especially male relatives. And so when my grandmother stood up to these bullies, they did such a guilt trip. And again, I'm not making this up. She told me they did this. They told her Tom was spinning in his grave at what she was thinking of doing with the children because the other option open to her was to put them in an orphanage. Wow. That, that's, uh, I don't know how anybody can make that choice. It's, it's a a very difficult thing. Uh, It certainly seems, I think on the surface you go, well, you keep them in the family, you know, come on, you keep them in the family. So I'm thinking knowing my grandmother who did not make that choice, did not choose that option, that she really knew these guys and knew what their lives would be. They would be living as second-class citizens in their uncle's homes. And in the story, I have a chapter about a a real relative that I remember, Mamie, who was an old maid, as they called uh, married ladies of a certain age at that time, and probably still do. But her life, you know, Mary got to see what Mamie's life was like, what living basically as a servant in her father's home, because when he remarried, and this is true, thank you, census data, her father, uh, she was 15 when her mother died. Her father married very quickly to a 14-year-old girl, a year younger than his oldest daughter. So he had five kids with his first wife, and for a while there, she Mamie would have been running the household. Then he remarried to a young girl who immediately, of course, started having babies. And before you know it, poor Mamie's living next door at the farm next door, taking care of a great aunt and a great uncle until uh, one of them passes away. And then she comes back into the family and uh, lives the rest of her life there. Interesting I, stuff, man. Yeah, uh, so it, it's like... What what was it like to be looking oh looking for a job as a woman at that time? What were the kind of questions they were going to ask her that are illegal now to ask? Are you pregnant? Are you planning on getting pregnant? Are you just looking for a husband? You're a right. Six. Yeah. You're looking for a husband in this office, aren't you? So um, really uh, oppressive. And so, uh, yeah. if I can, part of uh, part of the challenge here. And I don't think most people kind of would necessarily uh, understand this, that even if she got the job, it probably would not pay enough to support a family of six people. And women in general, I mean, even today, uh, we have a very uh, 
pay a wide pay gap. But in those days, women were probably looking, and they didn't have a minimum wage at the time. They were looking at probably a dollar. If I say a dollar an hour, it, it probably that's a lot, <laughs> right? Um, My grandmother once told she wound up finding a job, and I have this near the end of the book. She does take a job working at the Atlantic Coastline, which was a major railroad that ran up and down the East Coast from New York to Florida. Anyway, and their headquarters was here in Wilmington. In the late 50s, they moved to Jacksonville, Florida, devastated this, the town. It took us a couple of decades to regroup. But anyway, at that time, it was very vibrant, major um, employer. So she got employed there to scrub floors all through the night. And for many, many years, through the Depression, that's how she earned money, was scrubbing floors on her knees. And she said, we'd scrub them one night, and then the next night, put down wax, and the next night, scrape it off and put wow. in, you know, start over on their knees, huge multi-floor uh, office buildings. So um, she told me once, and I can't swear to it. Although I have found some pay stubs from that time for her, and it wouldn't be far off the, the mark. She told me she got 50 cents a night. Ah, that's even less than I, I was going to guess, like $6 a week. Or wow. But yeah. it may, and it may have been a little bit more, but looking at, you know, the I have the, the pay stubs, and it shows how many hours and what she got, <laughs> and it, it's not far you know that's not that far off from fifty cents. Insane. So, so how how? I mean, they did not probably... live well. Is the answer? <laughs> yeah. And this is what because my father was one of seventeen children. Uh, he was the last of seventeen children. His oh. his mother was near uh, middle age when she uh, near fifty when she had yeah. him and wasn't expecting him. And, and he was born a, a year and a month before the great depression hit mm -hmm. so uh but it, i i did get a uh, some idea of what it was like for him in those days of you know eating like it was almost all filler type of food <laughs> they would you know uh, protein was a hard hard to come yeah. by thing and this is things we take for granted we talk about inflation and and the price of things these days just general sustenance was a major challenge in those days. And it's, it's important to appreciate that. Um, I want to talk, and, and please don't take this as uh, being critical of your work, but uh, your story is for me. It's something I am deeply interested in. It's a book that I want to I wanna, uh, read. Uh, also, the cover is beautiful. It's a, it's a piece of work. and But... I don't think it disconnects because when if I look at the cover, I look at it and say, that's not for me. That's probably a romance novel. It doesn't look like a historical uh, record uh, or novel about a depression era. So that kind of it's, it's kind of weird because I, I know this book is for me. People do judge a, a book by its cover. It's, it's a cliche, but it's absolutely true. And I look at it and I say, well, that's a beautiful piece of art. I would love to hang that on my wall, but that's not like a book I want to read. Now, I know it's a book I want to read, but I wouldn't know that from the cover. Any uh, any uh, thoughts on that confusion? <laughs> that's, that's, I must say you're the first person to say that, to me at least. Um, but I, I do understand what you mean. It doesn't look, for instance, 
when I was working with this is the the whole let's see if I can stretch. Uh, I didn't see the back part of it. Yeah. yeah so Let me take the book down. Hold on. Let me take the book down and solo you out for a second so we can see the whole thing. So this is the back of the book where we uh, see the I'm sorry, I'm yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Nice. And so it's you know, it's a scene right there by the the um shoreline. And um, which is, as I said, right, really is where my grandmother lived. But the the artist, originally the sky was black and the trees were black and it was very depressing. Well, this actually ends um, on New Year's Eve, 1929. So we've had the crash a couple of months ago in, in October but the real depression hasn't started yet. Right. The 20s were the roaring 20s. Right. Things were great. And I have in here where, you know, they're reading from the paper and all these experts are saying, ah, the 30s are going to be even better than the 20s. It's going to be wonderful. I mean, we have to realize what a shocker this was. And there were a few uh, people who were, you know, ringing a warning bell. And I have that in here. But people were like, oh, you know, that that's a weird person. Kind of like early people talking about climate change. It's like, right. well, they're weird. You know, that, that couldn't happen. But um, I agree that it, it, it does look pretty. But there is a lot in here about family life. There are funny stories. Uh, and no, I, My only concern is that men yes, would, would men, just pass yes. over it and not know the significance that there's All a really I good can story say behind is the book. Clearly, the wives and the, the sisters have got daughters have got to do their work and go, look, you're going to like it. Take the cover <laughs> off. Here's, here's a solution. You get, well, first of all, if you read the ebook, you don't ever see the cover. Right. But, you know, you just take the cover off. Yeah, there you go. Doesn't <laughs> that look like your kind of book? Yes. It does. Yes, absolutely. Got a grip. Great uh, book. Now, if uh, how how uh, long was your grandmother's life? How did she live a long life? Yes, she lived to be eighty. So, uh, yeah, she was. Uh, so all amazing. that work on your hands and knees scrubbing floors—it uh, <laughs> was a good thing for. Her. And, and she, well, she had really bad knees. Let me tell you, which I seem to have inherited. Actually, I I, I don't know what that is, but. Um, she was, I end the story with uh, an epilogue that takes place at the end of World War II. And it's been 17 years, so it's 1947, Christmas. They're back together as a family for the first time since they um, they parted. I don't want to give away too much. Yeah, uh, yeah. At, at New Year's Eve, uh, 1929. So they had not had a Christmas all together until like the two boys, there's four girls and then the two younger ones were boys and the boys are back from the service and they've been, they're still in the service, but they're not at war, you know, obviously the war's over. So I have them kind of catching up and we see how these kids turned out, you know, they're starting their own families, most of them, but I tell a story that actually happened to my grandmother she, in her later years, um, started uh, enjoying pier fishing with my step-grandfather. She remarried, and that's in the epilogue. Um, and he was the only granddaddy I ever knew. So, you know, but they would go off to um, the pier and 
fish. And one day he went off to get them a soft drink or something at the little concession stand. So she's by herself. And there were men there who were drinking out of brown paper bags. You know, clearly they were drinking. And they started cursing and using bad language. And my grandmother, who had a wicked sense of humor, um, but she did not, you did not curse around that lady. I mean, no, that was not going to happen. And she finally had enough. And she turned around on them, put her pole down and turned around, and looked at them and told them they would no longer be using that kind of language around her, that she was there to enjoy herself and she was not standing for it. And they could just behave themselves. I appreciate that. I, now, you know. <laughs> when I when I heard her tell this story to my mother and um, my older um, oldest aunt and Irene, and they were like, oh, "Mother, those men could have been horrible to you," because it's really happened in the late in in the sixties, but um, not in the forties where I put it. But they were horrified that they could have said something horrible to her, been rude to her. My mother was like, one of them could have hit you. You know, who knew? To them, it was so dangerous to, to do such a thing. And my grandmother was like, I wasn't going to stand there and, and deal with this. Yeah, you know, uh, I have, because uh, I think in today's world, probably the loss of civility would be uh, more evident. But I think uh, my experience with that is uh, I would be intimidated by a, a, a strong-willed Southern lady telling me to behave myself. <laughs> oh, she said. She said their response was, yes, ma'am. Yeah, I, I, that would have been she mine, was, too. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. yeah, I get it. <laughs> I And I think time, the, the times would have... That would have been a normal behavior. So I think your 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 family's response to your grandmother telling that story, I think, is probably more based on on modern world things. And even yeah. the, even even today, if a uh, uh, a strong older Southern lady told me to behave myself, I would be intimidated. I would say yes, ma'am. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so. I'd be apologetic I, for. It. I, mean, really. um, I want to turn. Uh, to you for for a moment because you were an academic and you wanted to be an author your whole life you have since you were 12 uh why wait so long well, first of all what what field in academia were you in i a psychology and management okay uh now why uh how did you if you had this idea or this dream at 12 years old how did you end up being in in that area of psychology and management and uh, not pursuing the authorship? I think that when I went to college and it was my generation, you know, my grandfather couldn't read or write. I have a PhD, you know, I, so it was my generation of cousins, myself. We were the first ones to go to college. And I knew I had my, one thing my mother had um, made very clear to me was I needed to be able to support myself. And writing this book, by the way, made me realize where that came from. I had never really thought oh, about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I've had so many insights about my own mother, my own raising, um, because of almost two years of a mat, trying to imagine what it was like during that time. But I, I well, I started out in chemistry. That was, what was I thinking? But then I discovered psychology. I was actually interested in animal behavior. And I went on and got my master's at William and Mary, um, went to a doctoral program for a year, but I was burned out. So I worked in the real world. 
for a number of years and finally went back and got a doctorate in management, which is in many ways applied psychology, because I was so amazed working at different companies, how poorly run they always were. They were horribly managed. Um, I, I, I kept thinking, somebody must study this. Right. And when I, you know, found out that as in fact, a friend of mine who had gone, we were in college together and he had gone on and gotten his doctorate in psychology. Uh, we were chatting one time on the phone and he said, you should get a PhD in management. I actually laughed. I laughed and I said, you can get a PhD in management, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, be like, you can get a PhD painting nails, not that to denigrate that, but um, it's like, it really, it doesn't show in any of the places where I was working. So uh, I was very interested because most of us do live, uh, do work in corporations and it affects people's lives. Absolutely. It's important and they need to stop screwing it up, how they are running these places and treating their employees, not to mention their customers, but the employee side, of course, is the part that I really got um, a full view of, um, you know, I, coming back from Christmas uh, to find out that the company, the little company I worked for was had been closed down by the bank. And by the way, the checks they gave you right before Christmas, those were rubber. You won't be getting paid for like a month. Um, it makes a great story when I started teaching, but it, it wasn't great to live through. Uh, in the 80s, corporate culture, you probably remember how, um, well, even now, how important, you know, the corporate culture and how we're going to change our cult culture to make, make it better. I worked for a large company that sent around a memo on Friday afternoon that said, as of Monday morning, our culture is going to be this, 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 and this. <laughs> like you can change it with just a, a, a memo. <laughs> That's all it took was a memo. Right. It was like, why didn't we? And why Why was corporate America so enchanted with the idea of corporate culture? Because they saw the Japanese companies, which is where we got this idea, Demi. and how profitable yeah, right. they were. And right. we thought, hey, we don't have to pay our workers more. We right. just need to make them loyal employees. That's what that was all about. It was about taking advantage. Of workers wow so you know what I, that that should be your next book not that i i'm not telling you what to do but i mean there's a whole uh that that's a fascinating thing because of the way is. that business has evolved i've worked and uh i worked for a company where i actually went into there were five uh it wasn't a corporation it was a uh, small company uh, with 50 exactly 50 employees so they could always maintain their small business status right uh, right but the five guys who ran the company i went in and i started talking about the culture was messed up and they looked at me like i had two heads like they didn't mm -hmm. understand culture and its importance and mm -hmm. that leadership and and how you set examples of culture you don't just put up a mission statement and expect people to behave in a certain way <laughs> how about that yeah, yeah, yeah. the whole mission statement which of course came out of the corporate culture love right. affair yeah. you know like, oh we'll just have a great mission statement that'll take care of it yeah. you know it's it's like how where is your common sense yeah. but they read a book on the weekend, 
you know, that touts his stuff, they come back on Monday morning going, oh, I know how to fix the company, and it won't cost us anything. And the, the also, relationship to psychology today is because uh, they used to do a business edition at one o'clock uh, every day, and it was business leaders. And they're so full of pop culture nonsense that it's not traditional psychology; it's pop psychology. It's 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 the latest thing that some guru said, and all that stuff. And it gets really conflated with you know cliches that that make everything sound so easy and and right. change, you know right. so. You know, it could be another book in that. But I, I, I think you you could be right. So yeah. that is how I spent my adult years was doing research. I did research on corporate governance. So looking at misbehaving CEOs that no shortage of things to look at there. Uh, and so I wrote, but it was academically, you know, not uh, yeah, fiction. Yeah. So it. this is definitely a novel. It reads like a novel. It can't be a memoir. I wasn't. I'm old, but I'm not that old. So um, <laughs> you know, it's like, I wasn't there in 1929. But um, it is a labor of love. And I think that I don't want someone thinking, oh, it's just going to be depressing. It's not. It is a very hopeful book. No, it really, I... it looks at a woman who was, had nothing really in her favor except maybe a loving family, um, but poor and destitute, uh, homeless. The house they lived in went with my grandfather's job. So she was also homeless immediately, had to get out so that the new farm manager's family could move in. And she maintained her ethics. She maintained her dignity. She took care of her kids and she discovered what being a good mother was really about. It wasn't about what does everybody think about me? That's very interesting stuff. And because yesterday we we were, I had a my guest was uh, a guy who was talking about um, a masculinity crisis, and he was talking about roles of men and women. And I think this uh, is goes counter to what he was talking about. I mean, the idea of how we identify a woman's role and a man's role in the world. Yeah, I, your grandmother sounds like she was one of those people who broke down barriers. Oh, do what you need to do to take care of your family and survive. And, uh, you know, a lot of the ideas we have about, well, men should always be the provider and pr protector and all that stuff. What happens when he dies? You know, <laughs> that's yeah. when you step up. Uh, but I, um, if I can, I want to keep it on you just for a second here, and we'll come back to, to the book right before we wrap this up. But because you are a person who put your... Uh, livelihood in front of your dream in a lot of ways. And a big part of why I started this, and I try to reconnect with this every once in a while because I forget why I started doing this, was to encourage people to pursue what their real purpose in life is, what their calling is. Uh, and I'll, I'll try to make this as brief as possible. Before I started doing this, uh, I was buying an amplifier from a guy off of Craigslist. And this guy was, he was very wealthy. I, he asked me to meet him in a, a parking lot, which I thought was weird. Like, why can't I go to your house? It's an amplifier. I'm going to need to plug it in. Anyway, I waited for him. I got there early. He showed up and I could tell right away he was very wealthy. And by the vehicle he pulled up in, his wife was there covered in diamonds and pearls and smelled like money. And uh, 
we got to talking. He asked, what do I do? I said, I'm a musician. He said, oh, you're living the dream. And I laughed in his face. And not to be rude, but I was like, you don't know my life. You don't know. Yeah, I, I'm, a str- I'm not a rock star. I'm not rich and famous. He said, stop. I'm 69 years old. I'm selling you my amplifier. I'm retiring. I always wanted to be in a band. This is significant, symbolic for me that I'm selling you my amplifier. It was the dream I had that I never followed. And I feel like it's too late in my life. And here he was looking at me wishing he could trade places with me. This guy who was very, very wealthy. And I'm thinking, man, I'd love to have some of his money. But <laughs> it, it was a paradigm shift for me because he, he was pointing out that he was jealous of me that I followed my dream and lived the life I wanted to live. And I think a lot of people put things, their, their, their dream and their real intended purpose for which they were born aside for practical reasons. And you, you are somebody who rediscovered it not too late. And I think that's a great lesson for people. So that's why I you. wanted to share that. And, and the other thing I'd like to add is that in addition, another reason I didn't pursue the writing is I felt like so many people, as so many people do, that I wasn't good enough. Uh, I didn't know, I, I wouldn't, I would make a hash of this story. I wanted it to be perfect. Um, it's possible, you know, perfectionism was a real issue for me. And I just, all of those things, well, as I got closer to 70, I thought, well, you know what? Pretty soon it's going to be a non-issue. And I knew this would be the thing I would most regret on my deathbed that I had not done right. if I did not write this book. And I thought, even if just my cousins read it, it, maybe they'll pass it on to their kids and this story will stay alive. So I also realized nobody cares what I'm doing. You know, if they don't like my book, eh, they don't have to read it. They don't have to buy it. Whatever. It, it only matters to me. Right. So I actually started this and it came out this June. I, and a few days before that, I turned 71. So Congratulations. It's not, thank you. It's not too late to, you know, get your act in order. And ju- I just kept telling myself, what the heck? Possibly worded slightly differently. But it was like, nobody cares. Just do it. And, yeah. I, kept, and I loved it. It was so freeing to finally break through that perfectionism and just do what I wanted to do. And I'm halfway through my next book. Wow. So, yeah, very cool. Uh, I, it's fun. Can I ask what that one's about? Is it? Uh... It's about narcissists. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, well, when that comes out, uh, please do come back, and we'll we'll help you uh, get the word out about it. Uh, I appreciate you. appreciate Thank you being here. Now, uh, was this an enjoyable process for you writing? I mean, was it a struggle? Yes. I mean, it's like the best fun ever. I've been. Um, retired for several years and i'm an introvert um you know i enjoy like our chat afterwards i'm going to be exhausted my batteries will be drained but i'm an introvert i don't i you know going out and making you know move back home i only knew a few cousins who were left and it it was i was just drifting good for you because so many people had to do something yeah. So many people I talk to authors, first time authors, say their first book was a struggle. It's 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 generally it comes easier and gets easier as it goes along. But they thought it would be an enjoyable process, but they, it ended up being a, like a forever. <laughs> type well, of- I had a real what the hell attitude. It was like I was very fortunate to get in a, a very nice small writing group. I'd get some feedback about, mm, you know, add more dialogue. Uh 
the the uh, show don't tell that was news to me. That's how you know I've never had a writing course. You right. know, academic writing, yes, yeah. but you know there there are footnotes here. Um, well, okay. Although there are author notes because I can't help myself, I have to go. Okay, here's where I you know I found this. But excellent um, stuff. Uh, the website where you can find out, uh, gailpiner.com. It's all one yes. word. It's P-I-N-E-R. Uh, mm-hmm. And the, the book is called A High Courage. I, I am going to read it. It is for me. Don't, if you're a guy, don't let the cover fool you. It's not a romance novel. Several men have read it, and they told me they love it. So yeah, it's, no, I, I think I, it's guy-recommended. The story is definitely... And you know what? It's not for all necessarily for old people like me too. I think young people need to hear this story and reconnect with what what really struggle is like in the world because we think we have it hard. We think, and I get into this conversation every day about people who are listening to the news and it's full of doom and gloom, and like we've never experienced what your grandmother experienced what my parents experienced and, and lived through. So I think it's important to reconnect with that time. It's an important historical lesson, but also an entertaining one and, and good for you. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for being thank, here. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, I, I have too. And do please come back uh, when your next uh, novel is complete. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank uh, you have, so have a great day, and uh, we'll we'll look forward to uh, getting the book and reading it, and uh, I will be in touch when I do, and we'll get let you have my feedback. Anyway, uh, thank you for being here. Have a great day. Bye for now. Thank you. Dr. Gail Piner, folks, see, I, it's important. Somebody has a PhD, I like to show respect. It wasn't in my liner notes that she had a PhD, but Dr. Gail Piner, uh, the book is called A High Courage. Go gailpiner.com and find out more about it. it's available now on amazon i hope you will check it out great story and i think a great counter to yesterday's conversation about masculinity because strong women strong women and i wanted to bring this up in yesterday's uh conversation because i think if we just uh, look at you know masculinity and what a man's role is there is a great importance to women who broke down the, those barriers and, you know, by necessity had to become breadwinners, had to become protectors and providers. And it's a, a complete counter to the ideas that we were, were speaking about yesterday. And I, I don't think we can negate that and just think, well, you know, that's a man's role. I think when we do that, it's not good for us as a society. It's not good for uh, the individuals that go through it and judgment and all that kind of stuff. Love to hear your thoughts on that. The the counterbalance between today's topic and yesterday's topic. Anyway, that's the show for you. Tomorrow I have two comedians on, I believe, or a comedian and an author again tomorrow. Uh, let me just check. on. I know Katie Dudley is the morning guest. She's from L.A. She'll be joining us. It will be 6.15 a.m. her time when she comes on. And Danielle uh, Amoracino, who is a novelist, will be uh, in the second hour. So that's uh, what we're looking forward to tomorrow. Hope you'll join me then. Thanks for coming today. Don't forget uh, to write to me and let me know what you think about all these things. And tell your friends and come on back. Uh, looks like Willie is uh, not might have trouble connecting all week. So we'll just assume that I'm way ahead in the in the football poll. Uh, anyway, that's the show for today. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for coming, and don't forget to turn on your radio. Bye for now.
listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.